Be agile, fast to market, technology savvy. Get younger. That's the playbook of most American businesses as they create their strategies and curate their public image. Take, for example, Dunder Mifflin. Michael, I know exactly how much time and manpower are wasted in this branch. This company is getting younger, faster, more efficient. You need to prepare yourself. We're a youth-obsessed culture, and that spills over into how businesses conceive of themselves and imagine their ideal workforce. But it comes with a cost. Older workers are often seen as slow, out of touch, stuck in their ways, and digitally illiterate. Roadblocks to the future that need to be cleared. We're screwed. Who is? Us, you and me, the old timers. I am not old. You are old. You are like a hundred. You're over 40. That's the cutoff. Are you listening to what he's saying? Retraining. New system. Youth. I'm telling you, this kid is the Grim Reaper. In a recent Deloitte survey of approximately 10,000 companies, over two-thirds said that age is a competitive disadvantage to their organizations. So it's not terribly surprising that age discrimination is on the rise. AARP reported that 78% of workers over the age of 50 saw or experienced age discrimination in the workplace in 2020, compared to a still high but modest in comparison figure of 61% in 2018. AARP put a price tag on the consequences of discrimination at almost a trillion dollars in 2018, a number that will surely rise in a country that is rapidly aging. But before we consider the economic loss, we need to look at the modern math of longevity. In an aging society where careers must get longer, can the American economy still afford its innate ageism? Well, I'm Ronald Lee. I'm a professor of the graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley, and I'm an economic demographer, which means I study the interactions of population and the economy. We wanted to ask Ron about the coming silver wave, that demographic lurch towards older Americans, and its impact on the workplace. Among other factors, this shift has its roots in America's declining birth rate, which has plummeted from 2.1 to 1.6 births per woman in the past two decades. And that half a child, well, it's a drop of 25%, basically. You know, in the long run, that would mean 1% per year slower population growth than was expected before. Going with that is a much older population in the future. So birth rates are lower than they were, and they continue to drop. What does that mean for the American labor pool? It means the labor force will be growing more slowly. It means, in fact, the labor force will be declining if that continues. All this means that attracting and retaining older workers will be critical to growing the economy if it is to grow in the future. And for their part, older workers, at least many of them, want to stay engaged with work either out of economic requirement or to create purpose and community. But our business culture, and really our culture writ large, profoundly dislikes older workers. American businesses are eager to shed them when they can and reluctant to hire them when presented with younger, cheaper alternatives. Even before the pandemic, more than 50% of older workers, according to the Urban Institute, experience some form of involuntary layoff after age 50. And if you do lose your job after 50, the odds are stacked against you to get back to where you once were. Older workers form the largest group of long-term unemployed in this country, and if they can find work again, 
On average, it's at a pay rate of approximately half of their previous salary. For older workers, it's goodbye General Motors, hello Planet Fitness. If you still aren't convinced about the dire state of affairs for America's older workers, just ask Elizabeth White, a Harvard MBA and a successful executive who found her work drying up during the Great Recession and doors slammed on her because of her age. Sitting on her grandson's bed after this chain of events, she penned an essay called You Know Her that is all too familiar to many older workers who have found their fortunes change for the worse because of their age. You know her. She is in your friendship circle, hidden in plain sight. Her clothes are still impeccable, bought in the good years when she was still making money. To look at her, you would not know that her electricity was cut off last week for non-payment or that she meets the eligibility requirements for food stamps. But if you paid attention, you would see the sadness in her eyes, hear that hint of fear in her otherwise self-assured voice. These days she buys the $1.99 trial size jug of Tide to make ends meet. You didn't know laundry detergent came in that size. You invite her to the same expensive restaurants the two of you have always enjoyed. But she orders mineral water now with a twist of lemon instead of the $12 glass of Chardonnay. She is frugal in her menu choices, meticulous, counting every penny in her head. She demurs, dividing the table bill evenly to cover desserts, designer coffees, and second and third glasses of wine she did not consume. She is tired of trying to keep up appearances. Faking normal is wearing her out. There are no media stories about her. Her slide out of the middle class is not sensational enough. A friend says that she's broke, not poor, and that there's a difference. She lives without cable, her gym membership, or nail appointments. She's discovered that she can do her own hair. Elizabeth's story, which she later recounted in her book, 55 Underemployed and Faking Normal, is both highly personal and a tale familiar to every successive generation of older workers. In the past, her story might have clashed with our sense of fairness and humanity, but now it also runs afoul of the math of an aging workforce. We can no longer afford to have the talents of an Elizabeth White sitting on the sidelines, but there is a big gulf between saying that change is needed and making that change. How do we do that? This is Century Lies from the Stanford Center on Longevity, and we're here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. On this season of the podcast, we're exploring the 60-year career, what we want out of work, what it means to have more meaningful careers over a longer lifespan. Today, we're examining the ageism present in our society and asking how we can create workplaces that welcome and value older workers. But in that effort, we start from behind because our culture has a deeply nourished set of disagreeable beliefs about aging. We think of it as decline alone. Aging starts happening the minute we are born. We tend to think it's something annoying that old people do, and we tend to think it is a one-way process towards decay and decline. That's Ashton Applewhite. She's an anti-ageism activist and the author of the book, 
This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. The issue is not that our fears are not real, but that they are way out of proportion to the reality and that that fear itself is incredibly bad for us individually, um, all the ways in which it's bad for our health and our self-esteem and our sense of ourselves in the world, and collectively, both because of what all prejudice does, which is to pit us against each other, and um, in, in the world around us, you know, in the workplace, in our social lives, it segregates us, it isolates us, and on and on and on and on. So can you actually talk to some of the assumptions, uh, I'll sort of characterize, uh, business sector assumptions about older workers? Um, they're not as energetic, they're not as innovative, they're not as technological, they're more expensive. Can you sort of speak to those things? And then um, what's so good about older workers? Um, well... One assumption is that older workers cost more money. And in general, as you go through the workforce, you, you know, through life and you're working, you acquire experience and knowledge. And those are the two criteria that correlate with best workplace performance. Not so surprising, right? So that has value. Older workers have institutional knowledge, which has enormous incalculable value. So I think it's important for employers to weigh the costs of those two things and balance that against the assumption that hiring younger workers for cheaper costs money in the long run. When you balance in the cost of reducing turnover, institutional knowledge, um, you know, and I mean, I never want to say older workers are better than younger workers at whatever, but we do bring um, more emotional EQ, uh, they say, you know, the point is not that you want necessarily to hang on to the old people, you want to hang on to the good old people, but you want a mixed age team, you want age diversity, because diverse teams they, you know, function better, they make, they're better at complex decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just the way other forms of diversity are better for companies. So um, companies, at least superficially, uh, have bought into the notion that diverse teams are better than non-diverse teams. At least they talk that game. I don't uh, have a sense that they think that way about age diversity as a value. Why not? And why why haven't they been convinced of the value of age diverse teams? Well, I think it's happening. It's true that only 8% of uh, companies currently integrate age and ageism into their diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. I think that is starting to change. If the people calling me up asking me to do public speaking and talk on podcasts is any indicator, and it is something of a litmus test, it is really bleeping onto the radar with a vengeance, as it should be. I think it has been omitted for the same reason it's been omitted from the cultural discourse at large. Um, but there is uh, an astonishingly strong business case for it. AARP did a study, uh, the most recent one is in 2000, results from 2018, that pegged the cost to the U.S. economy of age bias against older workers in one year at $850 billion. And they calculate that by 2050, that could climb to $3.9 trillion, 2050, which is comparable to the GDP of Germany. So I think that corporate CEOs and policymakers, and the numbers are analogous globally, are starting to understand that there is a strong business case for tackling ageism at work. And needless to say, there is an incredibly strong human case. 
we're in a, in a historically tight labor market um, where companies are hurting for all sorts of talent. Do you actually think that's a pivot point where uh, companies are going to open their eyes to the latent pool of talent in older workers, many of them who are you know, often forced out of the workplace by ageism? I hope so. There is a global labor shortage. And companies that do not hire and retain older workers are handicapped in the so-called war, you know, war for talent, you know, this, this fierce competition, because they have less access to human and social capital. So it really harms them. I hear from people almost daily who have sent out hundreds and hundreds of resumes in a global labor shortage and without getting a single interview. If they land an interview, it often ends the minute they turn on their cameras or walk in the door before they have had a chance to say a word. I mean, imagine being told that the, the skills that you have honed throughout a lifetime are without any value simply because you are no longer young. You know, no, no prejudice is rational, and I don't ever want to say ageism is more bad or more stupid than other forms of prejudice, but it surely makes no economic sense. I do know also that a huge gating factor is human resources people who skew somewhat young, but who will acknowledge that their older hires perform as well or better than younger employees and yet persistently discriminate against us. What do you think success looks like? I mean, what does the workplace look like if it was actually open to older workers? So I am working towards culture change on the broadest level because we are not going to end discrimination in the workplace and make it a level playing field for either younger workers trying to get a foothold or older workers who perhaps all, all they want to do, not, not all, not to be deprecatory, is to transition gradually out of the workforce on their own terms with some dignity, you know, or work part. So many, this idea of flex time being a millennial thing, that's ridiculous. Everyone loves flex time. You know, and lots of people would return to the workplace, especially or transition gradually if they could hang on to their benefits until they have a new situation set up. That's good for human beings and it's good for employers. You know, I do see incremental change. You can't have an end goal in this line of work because it doesn't work that way, you know. But I know that every time someone changes even a little bit of their preconceived associations, even just with the word old, you know, that ripples out. You can't get that genie back in the bottle. And I see a lot of that happening all over the place. But what about Elizabeth White, whose essay we heard earlier? As a highly trained executive, she's not who we would typically think of as a victim of ageism in the workplace. But as her story shows, even those who seem on top of the world can be pulled down by a culture that devalues the contribution of older workers. So I was doing really well. I had had uh, I had been an entrepreneur. I had a business for ten years. Uh, I started two really good consultancies after that business. It was a really good uh, income, just chugging along. And then when the recession hit, as is the case with many companies, they retrenched. And so within six months, I lost both of those jobs. And at that point, I was in my mid-50s. I never expected to land here. I've 
you know, have a master's degree from John Hopkins. I went to Oberlin undergraduate. I'd worked at the World Bank. I have a Harvard MBA. This was not to be my story. And I have many friends with backgrounds that are comparable. And so when my phone stopped ringing, it took me a while to kind of get that I was in a long-term situation. And I say to people, I didn't sort of scale back fast enough. How hard was it for you to write this and sort of admit, sort of make yourself vulnerable to the public? Um, you were outing yourself in some ways. Um, that's brave. Uh, was that hard for you? No, it's very hard in a culture that is all about your bootstrap ingenuity. It's all about, you know, if things go awry, it is your fault. And we don't look at some of these bigger systemic barriers that uh, actually impact millions of people. And what I saw by the response I was getting, lots of people have landed here. And I remember once I was speaking in Martin, Tennessee. It was a factory that had closed. And then two weeks later, I was at an event at MIT in Cambridge. And what struck me, I was in both cases talking about the book. In one case, to an audience of factory workers who had lost their jobs. In another case, to people with backgrounds very similar to mine who had lost their jobs. Ken, the conversations were exactly the same. It was all about, I did everything I was supposed to do. You know, I used Crest toothpaste, banned deodorant, I didn't double park, I paid my taxes, and I have landed here. And the impact on ego, morale, marriages, loss of homes, it didn't matter whether you were drinking beer or Chardonnay, it was a story that was very similar. And that brought it home for me that it happens to workers who are blue collar and it happens to workers who are not. As you talk to people who are similarly situated, um, did you come away with a view, a view of sort of how hard it is sort of to start over in, in this economy, in this society when you're 55, when you're, when you're classified as an older worker? Ageism is rampant, and it starts very young, especially if you're in the tech industry. You know, for women, it can start in the late 30s. My experience is that I can be talking with someone who is older than I am, and I feel them, see them pulling up the drawbridge. They're discriminating against me. And you're, they're older than I am. So this is prevalent in the uh, workplace. And I'm at a point where, because there's a lot of data now, you know, making the case about, you know, why an age-diverse workplace is good. I really would like to focus on the companies. Who are the companies that are already doing it? The laggards are going to be there. They'll come in last on this. Let's learn from who is already in this space, who's made mistakes, they tried something, it didn't work. Um, I think that's where our focus should be now. This sort of mother, may I please, you know, value us older workers. I'm sort of done with that. So let's listen to Elizabeth. 
and focus on the companies that are recognizing the value of an age-diverse workforce. Unfortunately, there are companies and organizations that are beginning to make strides in this area. It's not a movement, not even a trend, but it is a start. And as companies wrestle with labor shortages, perhaps older workers will begin to have greater allure. Barbara Spitzer is Managing Director at Accenture in their talent and organization practice, where she focuses on the future of work. She's a leader on the Hidden Workers Untapped Talent Project, which highlights missing talent pools in the labor force, including older workers. Uh, why did uh, Accenture start the Hidden Workers Project? Well, you know, we're about um, combining human ingenuity and technology. And in order to trigger human ingenuity, you've got to have the right humans working for your company. We know all of our clients are struggling finding the right skills. We've all read the story. And so we wanted to find out why. You know, why are they struggling so much um, to get the people that they need? And we had a hunch that there was a pool of workers out there that are not being found. So we partnered with Professor Joe Fuller of Harvard. This is our third collaboration with him. And we set out to find out, are there hidden workers? Who are they? How big is the pool? And why aren't they being found? And by the way, hidden doesn't mean they're hiding. It means they can't be found. Uh, these are people who are eager to work. They're working part-time. They're unemployed, but they're looking, or they've just given up. They've gotten discouraged, and they've given up. What do you say to an employer who is, you know, um, leery about uh, hiring older workers? I think we can all assume that there are employers who have sort of general biases against hiring older workers. So what do you, how do you convince them that this is uh, something that they need to invest in? I think people are, our companies are going to have to do this out of sheer necessity. So I just talk about the ROI around, are you growing as fast as you do? Do you have the jobs that you need? You know, are, are you short, what skills are you short of? Oh, well, those are probably the people who you've been employing for 25, 30, 40 years. How can you keep them here longer? How's American business, uh, has American business as a sort of a larger group begun to think differently, especially in a time of very tight labor markets, um, been open to these ideas that maybe uh, you haven't been fishing in the right pond? So a lot of companies have done a lot to try to be more inclusive of older workers. So companies don't go fishing in that pond because you can see the horizon of when they're going to leave the workforce. They may be less healthy. They're going to cost more on your benefits. You know, and there's a bias, right? So Microsoft made a conscious effort to go after the older worker cohort of hidden workers. So they started this include program where they listened intently to the people who were employed at Microsoft and were older, what do you need? Well, we want flexible work schedules. We want to be able to take sabbaticals. You know, we want to be able to have training. We want good healthcare benefits, but we can't pay an arm and a leg for it, right? And uh, you know, we want to be able to take some time off to take care of my parents. You know, I might be 63 years old, I got older parents and you know, they're ill. So they put in flexible benefits where there are a 10-year freeze on deductibles. There's no premium for total health care. And maybe in exchange for that, the person may make a little bit less in cash because cash matters a little less. And another company, um, Marriott, you know, they have flexible schedules. They, they help um, their employees buy and sell properties. And they have relationships with senior living facilities where they make that available to their people. So it's an example of how companies are changing and adopting new practices um, to really access this, this labor pool. 
just as forward-looking companies have recognized that they need to rethink workplace practices to support women or employees of color, they have also recognized that the needs of older workers may be different. CVS is one such company. 25% of the pharmacy retailer's workforce is 55 and older, and it has been leading the pack on this issue for a while, even running a snowbird program at one point that allowed their pharmacists to travel south for the winter. We sent out producer Cameron Chertavian to speak with Lena Barkley, an operations manager of workforce initiatives with CVS Health. A 26-year veteran in the company, she works to attract talent who might otherwise be overlooked by CVS. What qualities, kind of in your experience, do older workers possess that CVS values? Well, you know, older workers or mature workers uh, come already with uh, maturity in the sense that uh, soft skills, uh, they know how to treat people. They actually are able to communicate. Um, it's, hi, how you doing? You know, how, how's the family today? Um, you don't have to teach that. It's the kindness, uh, the passion that they have for the work. Um, they come to work early. They're ready to work. They uh, have a passion and a, a real synergy for showing up on time and doing the best that they can every single day. So with that, um, you know, they're an untapped resource and we want to tap into that. Can you tell me a little, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about having a age diverse workforce and how, you know, we know diversity has all these benefits in the workplace but we don't talk about age diversity that much. Does CVS kind of think about how hiring mature workers can create an age diverse workforce? Yes, it, it's so important because together we leverage whether you're working with a new person coming on that's in their 20s or someone 35 um, or working with uh, someone who's been on the job for, take myself, 20 plus years that collective skill set uh, really has maturity in it to say that we're going to be successful. You don't want all of the same working together. We can mentor each other. We can learn from each other. It creates uh, a great workforce that's ready to do the job and have best results. So we need that diversity in the work skill so we all can learn from each other. It's great. Uh, obviously, we're in a pretty tight labor market. Um, how does CVS think about that in terms of the benefit they get from expanding the scope of workers they're looking at? You know, through the great resignation, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s decided not to come back to work. It is not the case with some of our mature workers. They're ready. They're eager. It's they're As I stated before, they're an untapped resource. There's no reason why... Uh, we can't dispel some of the rumors or the myths that a person 55 or older cannot do the job. They can, and they can do it a lot, uh, even working alongside with someone younger. For me, um, you know, I'm 70, and to me, it's the, it's the new 50. So we're looking in that scope. As long as we're a healthcare company and we're pushing wellness um, you know, exercise, healthy eating, that person can be that 70-year-old and still be capable of working and, and enjoying it. And so why not?
tap into that uh, resource and have them work alongside and mentor and really have the ability to do the job. And, and I say it one more time, do it well. We've got one person in pharmacy that's been with us over 62 years, just doing fantastic, um, you know, wants to still work, has a passion to still work. Uh, for even myself, it, it feels like a ministry. I love what I do. And so if I'm healthy and I can actually do that job, why should I not have the opportunity to do that? 62 years. That's even longer than the 60-year career that we imagine for the future. But as these longer careers become more and more common, we will need to rethink what constitutes old for these purposes. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act of 1967 classified anyone 40 or older as protected under age discrimination laws, a number that seems astonishingly young a half-century on. Is 50 old when an increasing number of people work to 70 and live to 100? And are age classifications even that relevant when health age is increasingly unpinned from chronological age? But whatever the number is, the demographic tide of today means that companies and communities will need to give older workers reasons to stay employed. They'll have to move beyond reducing discrimination and towards affirmative policies that support, nurture, and retain older workers. Whether that means greater flexibility, new glide paths towards retirement, or simply creative ideas like the Snowbird program at CVS, this should be one of the next great opportunities for both policymakers and human resources teams everywhere. Next week on the podcast, we explore the increasingly fuzzy line between work and retirement and the new world of Encore careers. I hope you'll join us then. Century Lives is produced by Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertavian. Special thanks to Joseph Fuller, Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School. Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablouei and the Audio Network. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.